University of New England is embarking on a bold new mission to transform the university's decommissioned boiler house into a purpose-built discovery space. Here, on Curiosity Built the Boiler House, we'll follow the transformation of this 1950s industrial building into a regional science-themed play space. Along the way, we'll also chat with leading experts in education, play-space design, and all things STEAM about what makes for an incredible discovery space experience. I'm Dr. James O'Hanlon, and for this episode, I chatted with the New South Wales manager of Inspiring Australia, Jackie Randalls. Inspiring Australia is a government organisation devoted to engaging the public with science. So Inspiring Australia is the national strategy for public engagement with science, technology and innovation. And it's about 10 years old now, and it was set up to bridge the gap between science and society, um, based on research that found there were too many Australians who didn't know what scientists did and why it mattered. So the initiative was really about trying to build a bridge between people who weren't that interested in science yet and creating welcoming experiences for them to meet a scientist and engage with science in some way. So my job as New South Wales manager is to set up opportunities for people to connect with a scientist, walk with a scientist, talk with a scientist, feel comfortable asking questions and sharing their concerns and to promote that two-way dialogue between individuals, communities and scientific experts. It was Senator Kim Carr back in the Labor government, so quite some time ago, in there were a lot of innovation roundtables and during all these conversations between universities and cultural institutions, they really did identify in this huge consultation that science had an image problem, that scientists were seen to be locked away in their ivory towers and not on this kind of two-way dialogue that the community wanted. And I think the climate change debates of the early 2000s had really led to this analysis of why are we so disconnected? Why aren't people believing us and voting with us? And what is it about our communications that's kind of banging people over the head with facts that's not cutting through? So the Inspiring Australia strategy was born from a huge consultation where... It was identified that scientists needed to be seen to be more relatable, to be more interested in what community voices, you know, were out there and we needed to promote more two-way dialogue. And um, another conversation that arose out of that was um, that we weren't using best practice models, that there was a lot of activity and there was a lot of duplication and there was a lack of coordination between all the various entities who had an interest in science engagement. So everybody was competing for the same small audience of science lovers and there was a lack of collaboration between the various players. So the Inspiring Australia roles were established to coordinate between the players, to get people talking to each other, to come up with collaborative initiatives that people could work on together and pool their resources Um, and also to give scientists access to a broader cohort of audience members. And that necessarily would involve some science communication development, 
Um, you're not talking to people who are your science fans. You're actually trying to build a connection with someone who might know nothing about your topic. So it was a multifaceted strategy. There's a silver book out there. All the principles in that book still ring true, I believe. But, um, you know, the challenge for all of us is the funding was always very limited in being able to implement all these recommendations. So, you know, with quite small budgets, I think we've managed to work wonders just by working collaboratively. As a manager, my role is to find people everywhere who have access to people who might not have that much access to science. So the way I work is I put out small grant opportunities that people can apply for, but in order to do so, they have to have an intention of working in collaboration with others as a regional science hub. This has been the way that I've managed to build a network of around a thousand organisations throughout the state who regularly put on welcoming science events in their community. So I don't do the event facilitation. What I do is bring the partners together who then connect to put on the science experience for their community. And I think it's worked because the communities themselves can decide what they're going to do. So pockets of interest are building around local issues, be they climate change, bush regeneration, fossils and rocks, marine science. Every science hub has its own particular area of interest and it's really driven by what the community want to do. So my program literally supports community-driven initiatives with tiny amounts of funding and then those partnerships are able to bring in other sources of support and that could be anything from a venue partner that has access to a whole lot of people or it could be um, further grants from local government or the arts community if you like but it's really just leveraging that community collaboration to create these experiences on a grand scale. The kinds of events that Inspiring Australia help facilitate are as variable and unique as the communities that present them. They all face the same challenge of putting together scientists with people who wouldn't have otherwise had the opportunity to meet a scientist and get to know them. So some of the most successful examples where we've brought in really large audiences have been partnerships with, say, a festival like Splendour in the Grass, where I managed to... um, enter into a partnership with this festival where we had a science tent that set up next to the comedy festival area where all day, every day, there are presentations and interactive experiences led by scientists. So that's a really valuable partnership for us because around 135,000 people used to go to this festival. How it looks after COVID-19, we'll have to see. But um, it's just been fantastic to have scientists there on the program along with rock stars and um, just creating that experience in the heart of mainstream culture along music, alongside music and art, the science as well. Another partnership that I'm really thrilled about is with the AFL out at Sydney Olympic Park Authority. So for a number of years we've done the Innovation Games. That's been a science festival smack in the middle of a rugby match and a football match So you're actually tapping into those sport-loving audiences and exploring the science around sport and technology. So it's a brand new audience for us. 
And as we were chatting before, I was saying one of the main objectives of Inspiring Australia is to welcome new audiences to engage with science. And so if we can tap into an audience of football fans, their families might have always taken them to the football and not to the museum or the zoo. So it's just kind of bringing the science to where people go. And then on a smaller scale, we have initiatives like, um, you know, the New England Northwest Science Hub events, so Science in the Club, um, art collaborations with the New England Regional Art Museum, citizen science activities like the Ant Blitz, um, the Smart Trees Project, where students and community members could tap into um, tree sensing technology and then create artworks and creative um, writing out of the sounds of tree sap flow. You know, so all kinds of projects have happened. Um, there's no limit to what people can do and we're open to considering any proposal so long as there's a scientist involved and there's a connection with an audience member. One of the regions we work with is the Murray region down on the Albury-Wodonga border there. And the person who's been running these science hub events down there has been the regional arts organisation, Murray Arts. And each year they have come up with the most incredibly creative projects, always using an art-based approach to communicate whatever they're looking at. And so one year they did a project with an ecologist about the endangered pygmy perch, which is a species of little fish in the river that's under threat at the moment. And they paired with a video projection artist and together the scientist and this artist came up with a concept of a nighttime vivid style event that they would hold in an island at night in the middle of winter in the Murray and to make this 360 in the round film they had to come up with an affordable solution to the projection so they did they bought a kids trampoline and they managed to project this film in the round and it was a beautiful visual image of a pygmy perch swimming and it had a very rich evocative audio track. And then they invited ecologically interested artists to come up with projections and installations and nighttime experiences and they invited the public. They did a really cool poster and local publicity and they just didn't know if anyone would come they were thinking you know maybe 60 people 70 people they got some food trucks along they had over a thousand people turn up like it was so successful everybody absolutely loved it and the following year they toured that same installation to three small towns in the area so Tumbarumba um, and a few other towns so that group have always come up with an evocative arts-based approach and it's always been surprising. They've also done a play about the endangered uh, squirrel glider. And that play was created in collaboration with the ecologists and a theatre company. They performed it a couple of times in small towns. And now it's a theatre piece that can tour and go to schools and that kind of thing. So I think the unexpected joy of a new work being created that can then be represented is a fantastic outcome, particularly if you've given someone a small grant for an event. You know, they've actually created a new work. Part of Jackie's job is helping put together regional science hubs, 
collaborative groups of people and organizations that bring their communities together in celebration of local science. Each regional science hub is unique, and I asked Jackie what sort of people and organizations she's looking for to form science hubs across the state. For the purposes of our funding, a science hub we describe as being three or more organisations or individuals who have an interest in presenting science engagement experiences for their community on an ongoing basis. So the reason why we set up this model was just a way of using a very finite amount of funding in a strategic way to create a network. So each year there's a small annual funding pool. It's been an up around $180,000 for the whole state. And over the years, we have more and more partners wanting to do things, which is fantastic, but the funding hasn't gone up. So one way we've managed to actually build some sustainability is by creating this science hub network approach, where the more people actually are putting on experiences locally, the more people join, the more other organisations will come on board and add to the experience. And it becomes this federated model, if if you like, of program delivery. So I've just come from Lismore, where there's probably around 13 organisations actively involved at the moment. So say if they get a grant of $5,000 for the year, each of the organisations will put their hand up to do something and they'll have a budget of around 800 bucks to spend. So it's just a way of getting people to work collaboratively and also bringing people together so anyone with an interest in science can meet each other, get to know each other and then schedule a year-round program. And that really adds to the cultural experience of the town. You know, it's putting on regular things to do. So the hub model has literally been a strategic intent to build a long-term strategy around this. We don't have enough money to just fund a one-off thing unless it's absolutely awesome. Um, You know, occasionally we'll sponsor something, but it's always very small amounts because that's just the way this program is. For me, finding people, particularly in regional areas, who are community people, you know, they're usually the people who are the volunteer firefighters or they run the community garden or they, you know, we have members who their local newspaper shut down so they set up a community newspaper. That same group are the projectionists in the theatre that closed in their community. Um, They're the local land care licence holder. So tapping into people within their communities who know everybody, who are already well-connected, I'm literally just piggybacking on other people's networks. And I think when I first got this job, I thought, okay, my first year I had $40,000 to give away. I thought, let's just try and get some science hubs happening because then I'll know who's out there. So if we offer some grants, I'll at least know who's out there and interested in this. But a lot of the ways I got out to the communities was through community networks, community radio, museums and galleries, libraries, like they're the connectors in towns and the universities. But quite often unis have very specific outreach objectives and that's recruitment. And this is not that. So obviously you want the university involved, but it's not about the university. And that can sometimes create a tension because it's about the science and it might be about several universities working together 
which is always tricky. So it's just networks and collaboration is the key and finding people who love to collaborate. And it's fun. Jackie doesn't have a background in science or science communication herself. Instead, she has a background in radio and communications. And if Jackie's job is about understanding how to reach people that aren't already interested in science, it's probably a bonus that she isn't approaching things from a scientific perspective. I came from a radio producing job. Um, I was a freelance radio producer for many years, mainly in community radio, and I would do the odd freelance program for the ABC. And then when I turned 30, I thought, oh, I guess I'd better get a job. There were no full-time jobs in radio. So I got into communications and marketing roles, but I was really bored in them. So it was a great way to kind of earn money, but just communicating everything that everybody else was doing just didn't do it for me. And one day I was in a role, in a communications role in a government department and I was bored to tears. Like I used to cry on the bus because it was so boring. And I saw this ad in the paper for inspiring Australian manager and I couldn't have been more bored in my job and I just applied for it. And it was just one of those lucky stroke of lucks where the job appeared, I kind of sold my ability to you know, storytelling, promotion, publicity, and then the community network experience. So even though I wasn't a scientist, um, I think having had that grassroots community work in my portfolio just helped me kind of pitch how I would do the role. So I was very lucky to get that job. And it's been, you know, short-term contracts being rolled over. We never knew how long it would last, but it's been a really great experience. You know, for every person I meet and talk to, I'm learning something new. Like having not studied science at university, I of course studied it at school like everyone else. Um, I did chemistry and physics and maths in HSC and have forgotten all of it. So, you know, because I wasn't using it. So I'm actually thinking of communicating with people who aren't scientists. So in a way, having that coming at it from the, per- the perspective of someone who's not an expert, I think helps help someone crystallise their thoughts so they're not over people's heads. And even sometimes some of the guests that we've had involved in, say, the City Recital Hall events, some of them have been over people's heads. Like sometimes it's just too sophisticated for people who aren't experts, but they still appreciate the passion and the enthusiasm and the, you know, the love someone has for their topic. So I think it's that fine line of I'm, I, I'm not a scientist, but I can kind of be a barometer for speaking to a group of people who aren't scientists. But they have other expertise. The audience is not, you know, there's no such thing as a non-scientist. The non-scientist could also be an expert in something else, you know, a parent, a voter, a politician, a business person. So everyone comes to a conversation with expertise of some kind. We're in a bit of a golden age of science communication. It's never been easier for people to access scientific information and to communicate directly with the scientists themselves, be it through face-to-face events, social media, science journalism, or free online content. But it's clear that scientific information still isn't getting out there into the public realm. I asked Jackie what she thinks is the biggest challenge facing science communicators today and what we need to be doing better to fix this. I think we all are in bubbles to a certain extent. I mean, 
the proliferation of filter bubbles where we surround ourselves with like-minded content, the fact that you and I will do a Google search and we'll be herded into results that are based on what we look at and where we're going elsewhere online, it's really hard to actually get out of those filter bubbles, I think. And that's why I think always trying to get beyond the people who love you and like you is a really important thing for scientists to do. Like you might have 300 people turn up at your science comedy night, but they might all be scientists. And so you're kind of preaching to people who already love you and know you and understand your work. So I think taking the effort to step outside your discipline, step outside your peer network, you know, going and getting involved in something that you would never normally do yourself is always a good thing to keep in mind. And in terms of measurement, like we always talk about evaluation and measurement and there's very little, there's limited measurement you can do with no budget. We don't have the money to hire qualitative researchers. We can do questionnaires, but the pickup on questionnaires is quite low. A group of scientists are doing an evaluation of National Science Week this year, which is excellent, but they didn't get a great turnout on the questionnaires, even though we had tens of thousands of people attending. So without having capacity to do focus groups, follow-up phone calls, collecting information about everyone and then ringing them six months later to see if anything changed, you know, we're quite limited. So I think um, it's just a matter of I don't agree that without robust scientifically evidence-based information you can't make an assessment that you might be having a difference in culture just by keeping these events rolling on. So I get lots of anecdotal feedback from my Science Hub partners about their audiences, the attendance, the, the science at the local, for example, regularly when they were live were getting over 100 people every couple of months at the bowling club, family friendly, people looked forward to it. There's a real sense of community builds and they really missed it when it was shut down. So they're turning up to virtual, you know, 70 people will tune into the live podcast. So I think we can look at audiences over time and the fact that there's still interest in these things. And, you know, I think it's fair to say they are making a difference. Although I don't have hard metrics to give the scientists that they can publish a paper and, you know, say that this is true. The information bubbles that we all live in are no more apparent than when we're interacting online. This poses a particular challenge for science communication and was a hurdle for Inspiring Australia in 2020 when all events had to go online due to COVID-19. I asked Jackie what online events could do to make sure they aren't just preaching to the choir. She said that event managers needed to find platforms outside of the usual communication circles and pointed to a particular online event run by Associate Professor Michael Kasumovic from UNSW, who blends science with video games and online streaming platforms to pioneer new ways of teaching. He has created a game called Arludo that's science games that teach kids the scientific method through gaming. He actually did an event on Twitch, which is the gamers platform, where people who 
love gaming if you're not familiar with it talk about gaming as they game and you can see their screen and they'll describe what they're doing so he invited a bunch of say five or six scientists to join him in twitch to play games together but chat about being a scientist and over the course of the afternoon he had over 70,000 people drop into that twitch now did they stick around were that, who were they? What did they do as a result of that? Did they just pop in and nick off? Who knows? But it was quite a compelling metric when at the moment, you know, the national funders are just counting up bums on seats as their qualitative metric. Um, Alice Motion, who's a professor of chemistry at Sydney Uni, she did a whole series of music compositions in response to nanoscience and those compositions were performed live on FBI radio every morning during Science Week. So she's potentially tapping into 400,000 FBI radio listeners, you know, who might not have attended a Science Week event. So after the performance, there'd be a chat with the scientist. So I think by stepping outside your usual audience partnering say with a music show or you know um, I'm just trying to think of another online event a lot of the podcasts as well there were quite a few new podcasts launched they all had about 500 listens to their first you know in their first iteration which I believe is quite respectable Um, so it's just you know getting your content out there and just trying to get it beyond your bubble through partnerships with other people, I think, who have a different audience to you. I think the numbers of people who attended events were quite surprising. And I think because you can attend an event and make dinner and attend to your home duties, which is what I did a lot of the time, um, it meant that more people were tuning in. The problem with online events, and I don't know how others feel, is that it's hard to stick with them. So it's easy to just walk away and do something else, you know, unless you're kind of sitting there at your desk and are very, very interested in the topic. Um, So I think it's got pros and cons. Like a lot of our regional people absolutely loved being able to tune into things from afar and there was greater access and yet the opportunity to make new connections in real life and socialise and form a relationship wasn't there in the same way. But, you know, the future of online events is going to be something that scientists need to be interested in because so much happens at scientific conferences. So you might have seen CSIRO did a whole symposium on the future of meetings, and they'll be publishing results of that, but it's all about how can you use technology, breakout rooms, you know, all the interactive tools... 3D, you know, in a way to create a more intimate connection online. I don't know. I'm not, I'm a learner just like everyone else in this space. It seems like we need effective science communication now more than ever. And it's initiatives like Inspiring Australia that are at the forefront of breaking down the barriers between scientists and non-scientists. Ask Jackie what she would like to see more of in the future and where she would like to see Inspiring Australia expand and grow. Events don't just happen. There's a whole lot of work and enthusiasm and dedication by people. So, you know, the science hubs that have managed to get a library on board where there's someone who has a job who can do some of that administration, that's amazing. 
Um, a lot of our groups are pulled together by people who are essentially freelance small business owners, but they happen to be very engaged in community-owned energy or land care or, you know, these that group who run the local media um, outlet. So they're doing this work anyway, and they'll always do this work. Inspiring Australia will come and go, but these people are kind of community-minded people trying to make their community stronger. So I think, you know, I would love to have money for them, you know, to get paid for all this good work that they do. But at the moment, that's just not the way thing is. But if you did actually pay some of these people and engage professionals with skills and experience, you could change the world. Like, you know, you pay for the talent and you get incredibly enhanced outcomes, as everybody knows. So I would like to see some proper investment in administration of programs so we can take a really great program and tour it around maybe and we can kind of, um, you know, have someone joining the dots. I would love to see regional coordinator roles, you know, three days a week. Someone gets paid to do what I do on a state basis at a local level and just bring everyone together and do some of that administrative work that is actually the barrier to keeping everything going. Because there is a lot of admin in writing grants, acquitting them, publicising them, booking venues, you know. So I think that thing about investing in the administration of programs would be a really valuable enhancement. Um, myself and my colleagues talk about it all the time and it's not really happening at the moment and things are so tight with the recession and COVID and the bushfires. It would be interesting to see if it happens. This podcast is recorded on NI1 Country and has been brought to you by the University of New England. To find out more about the Boiler House Discovery Space, visit uneboilerhouse.org.au. Thanks for listening. We'll see you here next time on Curiosity Built the Boiler House.